Hello everybody, this is Rabbi Ezra Balsam and welcome to Parsha Pah. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Truma and the word Truma means contribution, meaning that Hashem wanted the Jewish people to start contributing the raw material in order to create a spiritual house of connection to Him. And this week's Parsha marks the transition in Sefer Shemos because in Sefer Shemos we began with the origin story of the Jewish people, how we were made, where we came from, what we we're all about, and where we were meant to be headed to, what our mission was that Hashem intended for us. And then it transitioned into lawyer mode. We put on our lawyer caps uh, and we go into the laws of the Torah. And that's, you know, Parsash Yisro, we get the Ten Commandments. And then in Mishpatim, we get the mitzvot, how we're supposed to act to one another, um, and the social parameters that we are supposed to place in um, the places that we're living. And now we transition into our architecture caps. We get into the architecture of the, the Mishkan, the building of the Mishkan, the design of the Kalim. And then our Parsha goes into the, the, the design of the curtains, the beams, the parochas, and finally it ends with the Mizbeach and the outer courtyard. And the creation of the Mishkan, the building of the Mishkan, is actually going to continue for the next five parshios all the way till the end of Shemos. It's the longest single narrative that we find in Sefer Shemos um, to be interrupted only with the sin of the golden calf, which we find in Parshas Kisisa. So let's all get comfortable uh, with a little architecture, with a little of the building of the Mishkan. Uh, it's brought down by the Maral, by the Nesiva Shalom, by many of the Hasidish and Kabbalistic Svarim, that the Mishkan is the kissing point between the upper worlds and the lower worlds. And that's why everything in the Mishkan had to be built exactly. It's an exact measurement. And everything that was meant to be built down here, that was meant to, quote unquote, house Hashem, where Hashem was going to reside his presence, where he was going to arrest his Shekhinah and show his presence to us. Everything had to be very exact, very specific measurements. Um, and everything down here that was built down here was meant to represent on a much higher level what was happening up there. And that it should be a direct mirror of the upper worlds. It should be a microcosm and a symbolic representation of the universe as a whole. And that's why it's brought down that Betzalah, who is charged with the creating of the Kalim and the Mishkan, he actually knew the secrets, says the, the, the Gemara in Brachos 55a. It says that he actually knew the secrets of how Hashem created the universe by combining uh, the Oisius, the letters. And Betzalah was therefore charged as well with the making of the Mishkan, which is a very similar job to the creation of the world in that the Mishkan was made to reflect the universe as a whole. And it's very interesting because we actually find the many of the same verbiage uh, that is used to, when Hashem is creating the world, we find those same verbs in relation to the creation of the Mishkan. So for instance, we find that Hashem made the sky. Hashem made uh, the two large lights. We, he made the sun and the moon. Hashem made the beasts of the earth. And also in relation to the Mishkan, we find that they shall make me a, a Mishkan. They shall make me a sanctuary. They shall make me uh, an ark, an aron. They shall make me a shulchan, a table. So we find the same word make three times in relation to the creation of the world, three times in, the, in relation to the creation of the Mishkan. We also find that an Hashem saw Right? The keyword saw, 
all that he had made, and behold, hinei tov me'od, behold, it was very good, and as well, in relation to the creation of the Mishkan, Moshe saw, again, the word saw, all the skilled work, and behold, v'hinei, uh, they they had done it all. So we find those two verbs, saw and behold, in relation to both the creation of the world and the creation of the Mishkan. Later we find in relation to the creation of the world, the heavens and earth and all their array were completed. And we also find by the, by the creation of the Mishkan and the work of the Mishkan of the tent of meeting was completed. And Hashem had completed all the work. Moshe had completed all the work. And God blessed and Moshe blessed, and Hashem sanctified by Oso, and in relation to the Mishkan as well, and you shall sanctify the Mishkan and all of its vessels. So we find many of the same verbs used in relation to the creation of the world, also in relation to the creation of the Mishkan, because the Mishkan was meant to be this microcosm of the universe as a whole, and it was meant to reflect the upper world. So it was supposed to be a ladder between this world and the higher world where Hashem can can reside and where Hashem can reveal himself to humanity. Now I want to ask a very fundamental question, which is that Hashem is infinite. There's nothing, no space, no time that can bind Hashem, that can limit Hashem. He's limitless in every way. And if Hashem is so limitless, right, if he's infinite, completely unbound by time, by space, by matter, then Hashem doesn't need a home on earth. How are we supposed to make a home for Hashem? Yeshaya Hanavi says, Hashemayim Kisi, the heaven is my throne. Right, talking about Hashem. Hashem's, the heaven is Hashem's throne. The earth is Hashem's footstool. What house then can you build for me? Hashem's saying, what house can you build for me? So how is it possible that the Bnei Yisrael, the Jewish people, are able to make this house, this resting place, for Hashem. Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon, says the same thing as well. He says, but will Hashem really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built? So Shlomo, Shlomo HaMelech was saying that the temple, the, the Beis HaMikdash, it's impossible for it to house Hashem. How was the Mishkan supposed to, so to speak, be a home be a Mishkan, a dwelling place for Hashem. And I believe that the answer lies in this week's Parsha, that in this week's Parsha it says, It doesn't say, you should make for me a temple and I will dwell inside the temple that you have built, as you would expect it to say. It says, I will dwell amongst you, meaning Hashem will dwell amongst the people. Yes, a finite space cannot contain an infinite presence. But Hashem was saying, I will dwell amongst the Bnei Yisrael. I will dwell amongst them. Hashem was not going to live in a building, but in its builders. He was not going to live in a physical space, but in our hearts. And that is something that can contain Hashem in the respect uh, that we all are a piece of Hashem. Hashem exists amongst all of us. And Hashem was saying that when you build the Mishkan, I'm going to be closer within you. I'm going to be more accessible. And that's what the Mishkan was. It was an access point to reaching Hashem in the highest way possible. So now I want to move into our powerful idea for this 
Erev Shabbos Kodesh. It seems very interesting because this is the first command that the Jewish people get to actually build something by themselves. Uh, meaning that until now, it was all Hashem doing everything, right? Hashem sent the plagues. Hashem took them out of Mitzrayim. Hashem gave them riches. He divided the sea. He gave them food from heaven, water from the rock, right? And what was their response to all this? They were ungrateful. They're complaining. You know, there's there's not enough. We're thirsty. We're hungry. Uh, we we got to go back to Mitzrayim. It's unsafe here. Uh, we're getting cornered by Egypt. You know, let's surrender. Let's go back. Better to be slaves than to die by the sea. They kept complaining over and over and over again, except the only exception was Az Yashir. But besides for that, Hashem got nothing but complaints from the Jewish people in return. And there's a behavioral economist named Dan Ariely, very famous, lots of TED Talks. And he actually did a series of experiments on what he calls the Ikea effect. Now, the Ikea effect is when you buy furniture from Ikea, right? It was already designed. The pieces were already produced. There's written instructions. Um, yet we put it together by ourselves. It takes maybe half an hour. And we end up getting this feeling of, I made this, you know, <laughs> this is my furniture that I put together. Hey, you see, you see that uh, armoire that I put together? You see that table that I put together? Oh, check out that chair. You know, I put it together last night. Uh, and we take this certain pride in building something that was, you know, essentially already put together and served to us on a silver platter. And he found this, you know, quite fascinating. And he calls it the Ikea effect. And he got volunteers to make origami models uh, by folding papers. Uh, so people, they would do all these intricate folds on the paper and they would end up with a, a paper car or a paper frog, right? They would make different things out of origami. And he would get them to make these and he asked them how much they were prepared to keep the origami that they just made. Right. So they didn't make it using their own paper. They used it making their, their paper. And OK, you want to keep this? How much would you, how much are you willing to pay? On average, people were willing to pay 25 cents. And then he went and asked other people how much they'd pay for the same piece of origami. On average, they said only five cents. Right. So five times. So people overvalue what they make, the products that they make using their own sweat and tears, using their own um, skills and their own work, they value it five times more, he found, than how much it's actually worth, what the actual market value is. And the Gemara actually goes further than that. This, the, the Gemara says, um, right. A person wants his produce more than nine times the produce of somebody else, right? So the Gemara says, no, it's more than five times. It's actually nine times uh, the value that a person overvalues his own work versus the work of other people. And we find that we overvalue what we make. The greater the labor you have for something, the greater your love you're going to have for that product. Hashem sees this and turns the dial. He starts giving the Jews a chance to finally put in their own effort. Whatever they had, right? The gold, the silver, the bronze, uh, the purple, crimson uh, threads and yarns, the linen, the goat hairs, the ramskins, leather, the wood, uh, the oils, the jewels that they had to donate. They, Hashem allowed them to contribute all these materials 
And then on top of that, some people were able to give their skills. They were able to give their labor. They were able to put in their hard work and effort. Everyone had the opportunity to take part, right? Men, the women, the poor, the, the, the rich. The Jewish people, they invested something of themselves in the Mishkan. And that's actually the word truma. The word truma comes from the word tarum, which means lifted. Their contribution that they gave, it lifted them. They weren't now just the recipients. Um, now they were givers, so to speak. When we lift something up to Hashem, we realize that we ourselves are being lifted. And that's actually the first Pasuk. The first Pasuk says, And it actually uses the word, You should take for me Truma. It doesn't say that the Jewish people should give truma. It says you should take from the people truma. Okay, interesting. Then we look at the continuation of the verse, the Pasuk, and it says, May ace kol ish asher libo. You should be taking this truma from every person whose heart is inspired to give. Right? So it says you should take truma for me. That sounds like against their will. I'm taking truma from you. I'm not asking you to give. I'm taking it from you. And at the same time, right after, it says from every person who feels inspired to give, meaning they can give on their own accord. We're not going to force anybody. No taxation without representation. Everybody can give exactly what they what they want. We're not going to force anybody. But then why does it say you should take from me truma? The commentaries explain that the reason why it uses the verb you should take for me is because when a person gives truma, he's essentially taking for himself. It's to the best. It's for his benefit. When a person gives charity, he feels so good about himself. Kavachomer, for sure. When a person gives to Hashem, he's taking for himself. He's gaining much more than he's giving. And... The lesson that I want to bring out here is that we value something when we get to participate in the creating of it. When you're involved in a tzedakah, in a charity, personally, you're, you're adding in your time, your effort, your money, then we know that we value what that tzedakah, what that charity does on such a higher level. So Hashem was giving the Jewish people here a chance he was giving them a, a challenge, a responsibility in order that we should own it ourselves and that should, we should be able to uplift ourselves in the process. We all know this to be true, right? Every, all the time we work so hard on a project. We push for something. We put our own blood, sweat and tears, our own money into something and we value it because of that. That's what gets us into it. And this, I believe, is such a powerful and crucial lesson, which is to take ownership over your mitzvot, over your personal connection with Hashem. Don't take things for free. Don't have, you know, your mitzvot coming to you. You have to personally take ownership. The Gemara says that Rava would prepare his own fish, and it goes through, you know, different Amoraim, what they would do in order to prepare the house for Shabbos. And they had plenty of helpers, plenty of servants that can help them at the time, but they would sweep the floor themselves. Why? Because they wanted to personally make a contribution to Shabbos. When a person is personally involved in a mitzvah, it has so much of a greater effect on the person. And that's really what changes the person is the actions, is the investment, 
is the sweat, is the work that he puts into it. It's the investment that a person puts into a mitzvah that ends up lifting him in return. I recently put up a mezuzah on somebody's door. This person just bought himself a $350,000 house. Uh, and, you know, like he tells me, oh, I just bought this house. He invites me over to check it out. I check it out. Uh, and I'm like, oh, you need a mezuzah on your door. You just bought this new house. Of course, you need a mezuzah. Every Jewish home needs a mezuzah. And, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, of course, I'll get a mezuzah. How much does it cost? And I say $45. And he's like, $45? What? Why? Like, oh, you know, it's a handwritten parchment that's shipped in from Eretz Yisrael. It's not like that much money, $45. And he's like, oh, Rabbi, I can't. I I don't have enough money now. And he literally says this words. (laughs) He says, I'll I'll start saving. You know, so a person buys a $350,000 house and he can't even put, you know, $45 into putting a mezuzah, into bringing Hashem into his home. That, I believe, is a person whose parents kept Judaism for him. He never put in any of his own work, any of his own effort, you know. So now it comes the time where he's got to put in $45 for a mezuzah. It's like so beyond him, right? Because he never took his own ownership over his Judaism, over his connection to Hashem. And that, I believe, is so important when we're parenting our children, that if you want your kids to value Shabbos, they need to be a participant in the preparations of Shabbos. You need to give them, you know, some kind of dish, some kind of preparation, some way that they can invest into the mitzvah and make it theirs. They need to come up with their own Devar Torah and give it over however simple and, you know, childish and immature it's going to be. But that's what's important to them. They need to own their own Yiddishkeit in order to make it theirs. And they have no way of appreciating it when it's given to them on a silver platter. Right? When everything's prepared for them, all the food's already made. They come, you know, straight into Shabbos. The father, you know, takes the, the realm at the head of the Shabbos table, Zemiros, all by himself. Uh, uh, he says the Var Torah. Same with Sukkot. You know, the children have to be involved. And this is something that my father drove into us so hard is that the children have to be involved with the making of a Sukkah. The kids should choose their own esrog. You know, don't have somebody choose your esrog for you. You have to choose your esrog. You should be personally invested and personally involved with your mitzvot. And that's what draws you into it. That's what pays the dividends. That's when Hashem enters our lives and lifts us up on a much higher level. And I know that my Rebbe Rav Bloy, he was busy the whole year preparing matzos for Pesach. So when the harvest came in, he would go down to the fields, check out the wheat. He would uh, cut the wheat himself with the sickle. Uh, then he would grind it himself using this uh, kind of like a bike machine. It's very interesting. I went down there with him to grind. And my Rebbe used to grind that he'd do every single step of the making of the matzos by himself, by hand. And I once asked him, you know, Rebbe, you put so much work into the making of the matzos. And he's somebody who learns all day, right? So I'm like, Rebbe, you could be learning instead. There's so much else you could be doing with your time. Why is it so important for you to make the matzos yourself? Can't you just buy them from the store? You could buy the most mehudr, the most, uh, with all the stringencies, you could just buy them yourself. And I remember he tells me beaming. He's like, but it's my mitzvah. 
You know, this is my mitzvah. And that's what personal investment does. It makes it yours. It's your point of connection with Hashem. And you, Mamish, own it. And Hashem was giving the Jewish people a chance at finally owning something themselves. They were going to own the mitzvah of making this mishkan, of making this dwelling place for Hashem. And the Gemara and Megillah, the Lamed Aleph, Lamed Aleph, it says, wherever you find Hashem's greatness, there you also find His humility. And that's the humility of Hashem, is that He gave it up. Hashem could have, you know, brought about the Mishkan on His own. He could have built the Mishkan on His own. But He gave us the chance to own the mitzvah ourselves, to build the Mishkan ourselves, to be self-invested, to put our own toil into the building of the Mishkan so that we can feel like this is our spiritual conduit to Hashem. This is something we made and we can take the pride and sense the value in the Mishkan that we made in the connection that we formed with Hashem. And this, I believe, is the powerful takeaway from the week, is to own our own mitzvahs, to put all the sweat and toil that you possibly can into the mitzvahs. Don't let other people do it for you. You know, if somebody offers you a free mezuzah, say no. If somebody offers you a cheaper, no. You know, I want to choose it myself. I want to be involved in it myself. The the Torah that I hear, you know, I'm not going to let some rabbi give me the Torah. I want to, you know, look at the Pesukim myself. I want to figure out what's going on in the Pesukim, what Hashem wants from me. I want to put my own work, my own toil into the learning that I do. And it's in that way that we develop a much more powerful connection and relationship with Hashem. And that's what Dan Ariely was showing in his experiments called the Ikea effect. When you put in the work, even if you're only doing a minute part of it, you feel like it's it's yours. You feel like I made this, right? And we should all feel with every mitzvah, you know, I did this mitzvah and take personal pride in everything that we do. Wishing everybody an amazing, uplifting and powerful Shabbos. Tell me,